Hello and welcome back to a um ah fuck I don't I don't remember what I was saying uh episode of Hollywood Chop Shop. We are your cinema mechanics, Brett Mosier and Travis Santana. Today we are reviewing 2021's Reminiscence. But before we do, let's go ahead and check in on the shop. All right, all right. Just pull yourself together. You've known the guy for almost 20 years. He's going to be okay with it. As I walked into the shop, I thought about time and friendship and the future of the Hollywood Chop Shop. Brett has always been supportive, even when I reviewed The Wrong Lion King, but fate, fate is a fickle mistress, and we all know how fast the weather can change. That's what they say. Do I really know Brett? I mean, who is he? Who, who is he when he's not in the shop? Is he the person I think he is? Sure, I, I made a mistake with the paintball gun, but two weeks house arrest, it, it seems fair. Hey man, so what's up? What did the judge say? But fair, fair, it's simply a construct. It's man-made, just like time. But what's more valuable than time? Can, can Brett manage the shop without me? Of course he'll be angry, sad even, but without that sadness, you can't taste the sweet. Yo, Travis. Oh, oh shit. Oh, my bad, man. Uh, I was lost in the sauce there. Uh, so yeah, I talked to the judge. Don't freak out. It's two weeks house arrest for me. Hey, all things considered, not all that bad. I can handle the shop for a couple weeks. Don't worry about it. Wait, really? Man, I... I'm relieved. Uh, thanks, amigo. I'm I, I gonna grab some of my stuff before I head out, so uh, I'll see you later. Thanks again. As Travis departed the office, seemingly a free man, I couldn't help but think of the criminal justice system and how there should be a more elegant way to rehabilitate the quote-unquote ills of... What the fuck am I doing? Jesus Christ. Let's just review Reminiscence. In a world with no future, Nick Bannister helps lost souls cling to their past. With the use of a special memory fabrication machine and a background in interrogation, Nick ferries clients through the endless sea of echoes to revisit the perfect memory. After the love of his life vanishes without a trace, Nick begins to probe his own mind in hopes of finding something that will explain her disappearance, assuming she's the woman he remembers her being in the first place. Alrighty, Travis. We can go ahead We'll, uh, we'll, we'll do a quick diagnostic here, um, and then we'll jump into our, our five-point our, our five inspection, which this week is theme park, looks like New Orleans, seven degrees to inception, HBO scraps, and clever girl. So now that we've teased that, do you want to go ahead and give your, your quick diagnostic of reminiscence? Absolutely. Um, very briefly, I... This movie made me think of my childhood, specifically uh, elementary art class. Uh, big shouts to Miss Cunningham of LaGrange Elementary. She was a great art teacher. But I remember the first lesson of art that she taught me. We were doing some sort of painting, and we were mixing colors to show that, hey, you could put a 
two colors together and form a whole new beautiful color and add a little white, add a little black, whatever. And, and little Travis, he thought, well, hey, if two or three colors are great, ten would be even better. <laughs> and Miss Cunningham kind of gave me a knowing look like, yeah, just mix all the colors you want. And what I ended up with was brown paint reminiscent of shit. So that's what I think of this movie. Um, trying to put way too many colors, shall we say. All right. What great. about you? Uh, yeah, I think that'll transition very well into into one of the five points. Uh, clever girl. So um, my my thought, uh, major thought of this movie was it is it is trying way too hard to be clever. Um, and it's not just doing the the blocking and tackling of of making a movie, which is to say blocking and tackling and football is the basics that you need to understand and you know fundamentally have in order to play the game. And it is just a terrible fucking narrative. It is all over the fucking place. Um, there's multiple times where characters go to explain something and their explanation makes literally no sense. I, there's multiple times, Travis, I think I've watched this movie twice because I had to rewind it. Cause I'm like, that made no goddamn sense. Like what the fuck? A clear example of this is when Watts is explaining how she got her name. <laughs> it's just like by the end of the story, I'm like, what? That doesn't make any sense. Like, ultimately, to the audience, like, ultimately, they think it's because she deals with a lot of electronics or something like that. But no, it's because after the war, she went up and she was basically building batteries for drones and I guess did it incorrectly. And it basically blew up the factory. If I'm understanding the story correctly, and that's how she got the name Watts. And I'm like... Am I missing something? Is, is Watts a, like, is it slang for something that I'm unaware of? Because to me, that explanation for that name doesn't make any sense to me at all. Like, Short Circuit would have been a good name, not Watts. Uh, I would love to confirm or deny your story about what happened to her. I think you're right, but again, so many things in this movie are just brought up when it's convenient and dropped. Like the whole war in general, what was the purpose of Hugh Jackman being a war veteran other than he's got a limp that conveniently appears and disappears as needed? I thought that was his saunter. I didn't know he had a limp, honestly. I, I thought that was that was Hugh Jackman's swagger. Or should I say Nick Bannister's swagger? Well, no, I, there's a dropped line about why he is crippled. And yeah, it, again, it's just briefly <laughs> dropped. And... The whole movie, I'm expecting some sort of tie into the war because Hugh Jackman is supposed to be a military man, and yet he is the most poor strategist I think I've ever seen. Like, what about his military training did he use in this movie? I, he was a military interrogator, was my interpretation. Is that so? That was how, because of his interrogation background, it allowed him to do these memory like programs and all that stuff it's like it's so the entire movie is so fucking loose is what i i think the biggest issue with this because there's a lot of cool concepts in the movie and i think in a lot of other people's hands this could have been a very interesting movie it's still very inception-esque which we'll get into in a minute but like there's there's my problem with the with the movie when it's very clumsy um and it doesn't really take its itself serious enough is that I just start to pick the thing apart and I only start to focus on the little things that don't make sense like the fact that somehow the whole world the the tides are rising and all that and and cities are going underwater and the two places that this takes place are Miami and New Orleans 
and the whole thing about there's these barons who are buying up the dry land but really the dry land doesn't matter because then they wind up building basically dams around it so you can really create dry land wherever you want also is that mean that the sea level has risen everywhere if not like it's just fucking miami new orleans move like there's still an entire fucking country not underwater right now that i don't understand why people aren't moving but the other thing is funny miami is underwater new orleans is not in new orleans (laughs) in real life is below sea level in sea level (laughs) so i'm like even that i'm like that's the little stuff where i'm like this literally doesn't make sense because New Orleans, if you wanted to switch the settings, like New Orleans was the place that was underwater. Even one of the villains talks about how the levees broke, and I'm like, but it clearly didn't break because New Orleans is still dry. Not to mention the scene where basically at a certain point, Nick, um, he's doing a mind interrogation, or basically he's looking, he's working with the, the, the DA, and they're trying to go through a criminal who's dying his memories and they're so that they can basically link to criminal organizations or something like that. They're in Miami and in the memory, he finds the, the love of his life was at one point in New Orleans. So the next scene is literally him just on like it looks like a monorail train. And the next scene is him in, or- in New Orleans. And I'm like, did he just take a train to New Orleans? Like when, what the fuck just happened between these two scenes? Like there's there is no connective tissue in this movie whatsoever. Like when we talk about like and I I feel like one of my things is like this feels like when we we dog on comedies where it was just little sketches that like they tried to sew together very loosely. This to me was a sci fi movie that they had a lot of interesting ideas or scenes that they wanted to film and then loosely tried to put those concepts together. A hundred percent. You you read my mind. You you got into a, a pool of liquid, or I did, and you read my mind because the reason this movie frustrates me so much is they do a great job of world building. Like I'm very intrigued by how Miami operates under current circumstances, and I think <laughs> when you build that great of a world, what you don't need to do is make your plot overly complex. Well. Like I was thinking about a lot of the movies we reviewed, take any movie that we like, take the professionals and set it in this futuristic Miami city. You don't need to get any more complex than that. Mm -hmm. And you can make a great movie just based upon the backdrop and the world that you've created. But yet this movie feels the need to stuff a million different things in it and go a million different directions at all times. Well, And then then not only that, it breaks the rules that it establishes in the world. Like his whole thing at the beginning is like, oh, it's the world's become so hot that nobody does anything during the day. Everyone's become nocturnal. Except for him in May, his love interest, because all they do is hang out during the day. And I'm like, I thought it was supposed to be so hot and oppressive that literally you couldn't hang out during the day. And I'm like, no one sweats. And this whole movie is so clean, it's ridiculous. For a film noir movie, and it's supposed to be kind of a mystery, this movie is insanely polished and clean. Like, every character, no one sweats. You're already in Miami, which you already start sweating in 15 minutes there. Not to mention, I can't imagine the humidity if it's now underwater. Um, But no one sweats. No one gets dirty. At one point, he's describing a scene. He's like, and so I literally had to go through hell. And he's supposed to be going through basically like a homeless camp or something like that. No one looks dirty. No one, it doesn't look like it's completely run down or anything like that. He finds another villain who looks like they're basically in a very nice loft apartment. And I'm like, none of this looks like hell to me. Like, his monologues don't match up with what they decided 
to actually film as the set, you know? Yeah, every, everything that's outside in Miami looks like it's a cologne or perfume ad. Mm-hmm. Like this does not feel like a dystopian future that's underwater and, you know, the poor are poorer than they've ever been. Like um, May even mentions like her thrift store dress. And I'm like, that is not a fucking what thrift store are you shopping at? <laughs> or, or when he describes that May, she lives out in the outskirts of like the, the slum area where only the, you know, all the poor have been pushed to this. And I'm like, and there's a very, very nice nightclub in this area. And I'm like, this is a very nice nightclub to be in the absolute slums of fucking underwater Miami. Like, it's just a, a very nice nightclub. And she's got a home where she retreats to the roof and has a day bed with a bunch of silk sheets and shit. Like, again, I thought if the sun was up, it's unlivable. But she's like, no, let me take a little nap up on the roof where it would presumably be 120 degrees. Yeah. And it's just, this, this movie is infuriating for that reason, because there's so much where I'm just like, they literally, it makes me feel like they didn't care about the movie that they were making because it is so blatant that I'm like, and at some point I'm like, okay, this is going to wind up coming back in the movie. We're like, Oh, this is all a memory. And at the end, like, it's going to be like, Oh, because we, they try and remember things more perfect than they actually are. But really like, we're going to see what the real world looks like. No, that never, I mean, that would have been interesting to me if that was like, okay, they can at least explain why this place is so clean. I also think the entire premise of the movie is like, everybody's memory is insanely unreliable, but they make it sound like everyone's memory is a lockbox of like, you know, perfect, you know, details. And I'm like, I can't tell you how many movies are in, in stories, you know, books are about like how, I mean, literally criminal investigations where you remembered something incorrectly. And I'm like, but the, this movie implies that memories are always intact and perfect. And I'm like, it makes, that's a little detail that got under my, my skin uh, about the well, movie. Well, not only that, but I feel like there are several times where a memory is shown and I'm thinking of uh, Fandy Newton specifically it seems like he's reading her memory but he's able to see stuff that she was not present for (laughs) like if she's in the bathroom how do we know what rebecca ferguson was doing i wrote that down too so there's a scene where yes they have this they have the two femme fatale or the two uh female characters they have this heart to heart about one of them's an addict and the other one like abandoned their child so none of them have a right to judge each other and one of them decides that she has to separate herself and go to the bathroom. And the whole reason they're looking at this memory is because they they think that May has basically it's a long con and that she's stealing stuff from from their memory bank business or whatever it is. But somehow the proof that they get that she stole something was in a scene that that the other woman was not even in. So like to your point, how did she remember that it was there? Yeah, and not only remember that it was there, but have a visual representation of what it looked like. Yeah, I mean, it is. Then at the the, I thought the end of the movie, like the, and I I meant to go back and and actually rewatch this because I I I will almost guarantee you. So I I called the ending of the movie as soon as as soon as it happened. All right. So the minute that they're on the like the clock tower, whatever the fuck it is, and he's talking and they're talking about, oh, a good story always like a happy story has to end in the middle because no story ends happily. I'm like, oh, okay, so this is the movie will end with him in a memory bank thinking of this memory. I'm like, okay, I've already like and I bet you that scene happens in the exact middle of the movie as well, because, again, this whole being more clever than you need to be for the movie. Um, 
But that leads to, I honestly think, my biggest pet peeve with the entire movie. All right. So the the movie gets into basically at the end of it, he shows the whole scheme of what's going on with the Barons. Apparently that causes riots, which don't make any sense because the whole movie has never implied that people are on the verge of rioting. Like I, I wrote this in my notes, I'm like a movie that did a very good job of showing society on the, the, the tipping point of, of rioting was Joker with Joaquin Phoenix, where I'm like, by the end of the movie, when they actually start rioting in the streets, like the movie has set you up that that when that happens, it's very believable. This movie doesn't. All of a sudden they're just rioting. But basically he kills somebody. He feels guilty for it, but he, he makes a deal with the DA. So instead of them sending him to jail, what he does is he gets to live in one of his memories, right? So basically he's a prisoner in, in the, a good memory of his, which I was like, okay, I saw this coming. I don't mind that. He's going to wind up dying, you know, reliving this memory. Cool. Whatever. But then, the movie should have just ended there. But instead, they pull you back. And all of a sudden, he's like 50 years older. Um, yeah, they his, put some baby powder in both actors' <laughs> hair. Yeah. His, his partner, Watts, she's there as an old woman with her granddaughter talking about, like, he was such a great friend. And I'm like... How is he still alive? Who is who is keeping him alive in this bath for fucking 60 or for fucking 40 years? I'm like, it should have just ended with him dying in the bath in the middle. Like, literally, you could you could have just ended the movie with it fading to white after the memory. And it would have been like, oh, perfect. He died in the tank in his in this this repeated memory, whatever. Like, it made no sense when they took it out. And I'm like, what the fuck did you mean? Like, who has been coming here and keeping this dude alive? And how have they been keeping him alive? Does he have some kind of like IV where they're putting nutrition into him? Because clearly he's not waking up and then going back into the tank. So I'm like, that's when the movie like, granted, again, very in. That's when the movie I was like, okay, this movie's dog shit. Like, this movie left such a terrible, awful taste in my mouth when I left it. Yes, because towards the end of the movie, I had the same thought as you. I was like, this has been a shit show, but maybe they can nail the landing, send me away from this movie with, like, some sort of emotional feeling. Like, yeah, he would rather live in the past and die and then fade to white, and the audience can fill in those blanks. But like you said, instead... Mm -hmm let's he's been in the tank for 20 years are they changing the water why is the water not brown because he would be shitting and pissing everywhere assuming they're feeding him and if they weren't feeding him it would just be a skeleton with a headset on <laughs> it just it just makes absolutely no sense i mean it is it to me is like the epitome the movie can be completely encapsulated in that scene where you're just like this had no one thought this through this is somebody thought it would be a cool thing to end it with like oh he's been living in the memory i'm like he could have just died he could have like basically just faded away over the course of days and then that's it but i'm like even if it had been watts in a tombstone or something but the fact that she comes and puts flowers outside of him still in the tank made no sense to me whatsoever yeah, it's like, Grandma, can we go and visit the guy who's just laying in the pool comatose again? Like, I, I'm i sure children would really enjoy that experience. Yeah, and there's, there's so many scenes where it's just like the characters do not act 
naturally it is just a setup for something else to happen like and there are some 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 cool shots of this movie no like original shots like the one i think of the most is like when he's interrogating the dying prisoner and like the projector light is swirling in the background like that's it was a it was a, a pretty shot like i enjoyed that shot in the movie um but just overall again the movie is just so clean like it is just for something that's supposed to be gritty and you're supposed to feel the the you know the weight of you know post-war life and everyone's just living in nostalgia and all that i'm like the it doesn't feel that way at all like it's just it is an interesting world that was very poorly like somebody gave them a coloring book and rather than actually like put some grit onto it they just colored it very cleanly you know so I, I want to transition a little bit because I, I think it ties to a lot of our complaints. And, and that was the theme park. So mm -hmm. I dig a movie with a theme. I know you do as well. I, we dig characters with a code. This movie, again, is the complete opposite of that. So I just wanted to talk about all the themes that I just jotted down that I felt like they were just throwing against the wall to see what would stick. Okay. So in no particular order as far as where they appear in the movie, I'm thinking about the line where Hugh Jackman disarms the law enforcement officer before he kills somebody, and then mm -hmm. he just kind of knocks the guy out, and he says there are more elegant ways to stop a man besides a bullet. Yep. And I'm like, gee, are you talking about police brutality? Oh, okay. So also, I'm like, hey, never comes back up. Exactly. You can explore that if you wanted to, but that's the only scene that has anything to do with anything related to police brutality. Okay. Uh, Miami is underwater, and I mean it literally and figuratively. So Miami is underwater literally because of global warming. So again, there's another message we could talk about and try to harp on. But figuratively, everybody in Miami is underwater because of uh, – and Jesus Christ, this is when I knew it was going to be a bad movie. The first time land barons <laughs> were introduced as a term, I was like, oh, fuck. <laughs> and it was, he was a southern gentleman in Miami as a land baron. And so, yeah, the land barons are buying up all the real estate and pushing the poor people out. Okay, so that's a message. And I'll add to this. You don't have to call them land barons. A lot of America is living with this on a day-to-day -day basis, corporations buying out real estate and then jacking up the rent. We don't need to call them land barons. If you're going to try to make a movie about that, don't do little bullshit pulling your punches calling them land barons. Call them the mm -hmm. banks. Call them whatever. But that's yeah. a personal complaint. Um, so let's keep going with the themes that this movie tries to touch on. Uh, again, I talked about Nick being in the service and he's got the limp and the war backstory. You know, he has that story about, you know, I was in the trenches at sunset trying to think about what I could do with my life. And then you have his buddy who also served with him, you know, who obviously was wounded in battle, lost his legs. Society has forgotten about him. So it's like, hey, we need to treat our veterans better, which I agree. But again, it's kind of lip a big service shit on and him. then we move on. Oh, and better then, than that, they do a big shit on him because later, because he's he's helping his buddy out, like he's pro bono, which 
Also, how much does it cost to do your memory thing? Because May comes in and literally wants to find her fucking keys, which should have been a pretty clear sign something was going on because I feel like it's kind of an expensive service to get in there and the, at least the power and alone. use it like pop a lock. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they pop in. The, yeah, people just pop in like a hookah lounge. Like, hey, you want to go uh, You look at some memories real quick? Yeah, why not? Um, but in a, in a memory later, basically, after we've established how much Nick has gone to help out his buddy, his buddy sells him out for drugs. Like, so they take a giant shit on his, you know, the, the idea of loyalty at all or helping well, somebody out. Perfect transition, though. The, the mysterious drug that is given little explanation in this movie, Baca. Mm-hmm. It's the opioid crisis. You know, this veteran is hooked on it. He's willing to betray his friend because he's hooked on it. May, you know, helps get a mother of a child killed because she's hooked on the drugs. Again, now we're talking about the opioid crisis. But again, we don't get any backstory to the drug. We don't really see May suffering any withdrawal, anything like that. None of it is developed. It's just a dropped line because, you know, hey, it's important to talk about. And then I don't even know what to make about all the monologues on memory and love and moving on. Like, that's a message all in of itself. But I just listed off six messages that this movie is trying to cram in and doesn't do a particularly good job of any of them. Uh, totally agree. And I mean, just to say that, you know, I hate a movie with this much monologue. I think monologue is a lazy way to try and fix a movie that you couldn't write correctly because basically. It goes back to like when we talk about the professional, when old, you know, Tony gets beat up, you just see it on his face and you don't need Leon to have a monologue about like, and that's when I could see the bruises on his face. He had clearly been interrogated. Like there's, there's no reason to have a monologue and it doesn't, it typically doesn't add much to the character. Like none of the monologues gave me any more perspective as to who Nick was or what his motives were. I just thought they were lazy exposition. Right. Well, even worse, like you said, it feels like sometimes his monologue contradicts with what is on screen, which I mean, I, I don't know. That's the number one sin of it. if you're going to put an internal monologue, but the character doesn't portray that. What's the point in getting into their head? Or again, with this movie about being memory, if at the end of the movie had come back and like. I'm wait, always waiting for, like, a Fight Club reveal. Like, when you're like, oh, shit. You know, Tyler Durden was there the whole time. Like, oh, my God. These are, like, really, like, these are these are fabricated memories. Or these are, like, these. this is how he's remembering it, and it's not accurate or something like that. But, <clears throat> excuse me. They never... I thought that would have been an interesting twist in a movie I was waiting for a twist in. Um, I don't know. Maybe that leads to some of my disappointment. Is like it was just pretty much a straightforward movie about a guy who can access your memories if you hook up to a machine, and it's like that's literally all it was. Um, they didn't really have anything more with that. But I even at the beginning, like I started to give it a little credit when he starts talking about like oh nostalgia. People live off of nostalgia and stuff like that. And I'm like, yeah, nostalgia never goes out of style. Nostalgia never goes out of style. I'm like, oh, is that kind of being meta? Because like clearly, like this movie has heavy influences of the Maltese Falcon in it, um, which is you know a, a classic film noir. Um, when May shows up in the red dress, I'm like, oh, is this kind of like a nod to the Matrix? And you know, when the kid makes the the program, oh, the the lady in the the red dress, what'd you think of her? I'm like, oh, is this like a nod to the Matrix? Like, is this gonna be, is this is this movie gonna be kind of a meta homage to all of these other kind of like sci-fi things where you kind of plug into something or film noir? And no, it never materializes on that front either. And I'm like, are these nods or were they accidents? You know. 
I have no idea well, that, because nothing's intentional in this movie. I, I wanted to ask you because I, I do have a question specifically about the HBO scraps category. Mm-hmm. But before we get to that, because you brought it up, this movie, it echoed so many other movies. I mean, reminiscent of other movies like – I'll just list off some movies that I got vibes of that this movie is trying to ape in some way. Mm-hmm. Blade Runner, Minority Report, Strange Days, Inception. I could probably name four or five more, but I'm just like, even Hugh Jackman, like, The Fountain. There were some elements of the fountain yeah. in here. Oh, there's imagery from the fountain in this movie. Like when he's underwater and he sees her, I'm like, oh god, damn! This is almost this is almost the poster for the fountain. <laughs> when, and like the worst thing you can do is be shitty and then remind people of other movies. Because while I was watching it, I was like, I want to watch any number of movies kind of related to this, just not this one. Mm-hmm. So uh, but I wanted to get on the HBO scraps. What so, were you specifically talking about there? Because I have some HBO specific thoughts. So I felt like this movie, I did a little bit of research. So I'm going to have to look up because I don't remember off the top. Lisa Joy is who wrote and directed this movie. Lisa Joy co-wrote Westworld on HBO. And the more it has multiple actresses from Westworld in it both Watts and the the chick with the kid that gets killed are yeah are are in Westworld all I could think of was like this movie felt like subplots they couldn't fit into Westworld and that's what I started again going back to kind of when we you know we're dogging on on comedies that are just like little snippets they try to loosely put together this movie felt like it was a bunch of ideas they wanted to put into a Westworld and it wound up being like, oh, we don't have room for that. So it's like, okay, basically Lisa Joy tried to stitch all of these, you know, the scraps that couldn't make it into the show. But apparently this screenplay was written in 2013, and I believe Westworld came out much later than that. Um, so it's like, was this maybe, was this a rough draft of Westworld? Because I loved the first season of Westworld. After that, it, like the second oh, yeah, season. that's the key. Yeah, the second the season was season. fun. The third season's dog shit um but like my thing i was like was this kind of like where they like she started coming up with some of the concepts for westworld because even westworld it goes to that same thing where like westworld was also very clean for it to be a western especially after we watched a movie like the professionals where you actually see the men are sweating and they're dirty going through the desert but like i forgive that because westworld is supposed to be an amusement park it makes sense for all of those things to be clean and pristine because it is a fantasy it's you know it's a bastardization of what the west would have been as opposed to this movie where they just didn't take the time to actually like make the setting authentic yeah a hundred percent and apparently this script had been floating around hollywood for, you know since 2013 and a lot of people found it problematic and overstuffed as far as trying to do too much which hey looks like nothing changed since 2013 but when you brought up the hbo scraps even if it wasn't something that led to Westworld or, you know, the root ideas of Westworld, 
it did feel like Lisa Joy is built to write for TV. Because, again, the world building in this movie is great, and there are so many ideas that are intriguing. To try to put them in a one-hour and 55-minute movie is just a fool's task. Yeah. it. Even at that point, I wonder, like... And I have no proof of this. I tried to see if there was any research. Because, you know, if you look back at, like... We'll get, again, teasing Inception again. Inception was basically a deal that Christopher Nolan made that he would make... My understanding is he would make the third Dark Knight movie, Dark Knight Rises, but kind of his trade-off was he wanted to make his the movie he wanted to make, which was Inception. So basically he agreed, you know, almost like a tit-for-tat, like, if you allow me to make this movie Inception I want, I will finish off the Dark Knight trilogy, right? And I just wonder if this is one of those things where I'm like, okay, because it is HBO, it is Warner Brothers, she did all the stuff with Westworld. Is this a thing where like there was a tit for tat, like, hey, I will continue to write Westworld because it is a it is a cash cow for you in the absence of a you know a um, a Game of Thrones, in but I want to make this movie that I've had I've written since 2013, and basically it was one of those like, okay, we have to give it to her because we want her to finish out Westworld. I could absolutely see that. And the thing I want to know that we probably could never know is Lisa Joy happy with the edit of this movie because the vibe I got was she filmed like a three and a half hour movie with all of these concepts and ideas and Warner brothers were like, fuck, let's try to edit this into two hours and get it out. Cause man, you just feel the scissors and the red envelope to, reference another movie we reviewed earlier you feel it all over the place travis are you saying we could get a joy cut of this i mean sadly the way you know (laughs) movies are going yeah but the thing is i bet three months from now nobody will remember this movie in any capacity in fact like we do a review every week Give me two more reviews and I'll never reference this movie again. Yeah, uh, I I totally agree. <clears throat> so that kind of leads into Seven Degrees to Inception. I wanted to make it Seven Degrees to Christopher Nolan, but that would be even easier. At least this got us another de- degree away from it. Uh, honestly, I don't even know that because I'd have to look at who wrote Inception. Because Lisa Joy co-wrote Westworld with none other than Jonathan Nolan who is the brother of Christopher Nolan, who directed Inception. And I'm like, I don't know if at this point their creativity is just incestuous, but I'm like, it's all starting to fucking look the same. Yeah, no, I... Do you happen to know off the top of your head who's the older brother of those two? Uh, Christopher. Christopher Nolan's the older brother. No surprise. Because it feels like Jonathan just looks up to his big brother and wants to be what Christopher Nolan is. And look, I I like Christopher Nolan. I think he's overrated at this point, but I still think he's a great director. One of the great directors we have working today. And Jonathan Nolan's just desperately trying to get some level of credibility. And I feel like, yeah, he apes his brother's style, but not nearly as well. Yeah, the the writing credit for Inception is Christopher Nolan. So at this point, this... (laughs) I assume that at some point, Jonathan had to look over the script. But my problem was like, the beginning of this movie, my my first set of notes watching this movie, (laughs) verbatim, are, fuck, it even opens like Inception. 
guitar sounds like Inception. Like those are the, those were my first comments watching it because we had already gone into this thinking like, oh, this kind of looks like an Inception knockoff. And then the movie to me like starts off like an Inception knockoff. It starts off with the the water, the pan over the water. Instead of somebody like rolling up on a beach, instead we're going through basically Inception Town where like it's all of these rundown buildings like with water all around them. Like this literally like if you had told me this was an alternate own opening for Inception, I would have believed or it's a still from Inception. Inception, I would have believed you. Oh, 100%. And again, it builds a great world to play in because I feel like the Nolans, and I guess Lisa Joy by extension, they love to create a sandbox. It's just you got to have a narrative going into that sandbox. Whereas Christopher Nolan feels like you're in his sandbox, but you're on a linear ride that he wants to take you on. It feels like Jonathan Nolan and Lisa Joy, they bring you into the sandbox, but it's like playing with eight-year-olds. Like, hey, let's bring in the Star Wars figures and the Transformers figures, and let's do all of these things that ultimately don't make a cohesive story. Yeah, and there's – and just again to, to build this weird world-building thing where like it's interesting but like poorly done, like – the New Orleans scene with, I forget what the villain's name, it's like, what, like, Ninth Saint or something like that is what it, like, he just randomly throws, like, Mandarin words into what he's saying, so he's, like, speaking, uh. was it, like, Mandarin-ish or something, if you want to combine English and Mandarin, and I'm like, but it's distracting, like, and it's one of those things where I'm like, there's not enough context to the sentences for me to act, like, I have a decent idea of what he's trying to say, but, like, there are even sometimes where, like, I feel like the script writing realized that the people couldn't contextually figure out what he was trying to say because he'd be like, that's the word for girl. I'm like, you shouldn't have to tell me that. Like, that's a that's an additional line you've now had to film that you're taking away from something else because you had to explain, again, how clever you are. Yeah, you're talking about St. Joe. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, I always watch these movies with the subtitles on. If I hadn't... I would have no fucking idea what he was talking about or doing because like you said, every fifth or sixth word he throws in, I guess some sort of slang from his culture. And I'm like, I don't, I don't get this. And if you were, if you were watching this in a theater with no subtitles, God knows what you would think about that scene. Yeah. You know, I didn't, I, I have a couple other lines that just like, to your point about like, how the characters don't follow through with how they're supposed to act. Like there's a scene where Hugh Jackman, Nick is he's this is the first time he's seen the, like the, the prisoner's memory and he's found may in the memory. And like, he starts going off a rabbit hole and just focusing on her. And one of the detectives basically takes the thing from him and goes to try and basically take over the memory interrogation and it falls through. And Nick's line is, you should let the professionals do it. I'm like, motherfucker, you are the professional and you were way off script with what you were doing. Like, that's a that's a bizarre line to throw out there. Because again, as the audience, I'm like, why would that be his response? Like, I is, you know, I know that he wasn't being professional in what he's doing. He's now obsessed with the girl. Um, You know, I can only imagine at the beginning of when he first meets May, every time she undresses, whether it's in her memory or in front of him, like she doesn't give a shit if she sees him naked. Like he looks away and I, you know, oh, is she decent yet? Is one of the things he could, scenes that I'm like, I'm not 
sure what the point of all that was. I'm like, is it to show he's a decent guy and then how far he's fallen because of her, like where he's willing to kill people and basically like he burns like again, the burning is both literal and figurative. You know, burning is when you basically sear a person's memory to where they're having to follow the same memory over and over again, whether it's good or not. And when he intentionally burns somebody, it's while they're being burned alive in a memory. And I'm like, okay, that's little little you know again let's we don't have to be clever anymore um but there's there's just so much of that where it's like the characters don't actually act the way the characters are are designed to act by by the movie well can i also say it's pretty fucking creepy what nick does yeah like if you have a woman that's coming to just search for her car keys and then you kind of invade her memory even further than she agreed to so that you can later hit on her. Um, it's shit. It also reminds me of the movie that we're going to review next week, which I won't tease too much, but memory and things of that nature can be handled a lot better than this movie. And I think we'll end up proving that mm-hmm. through the rest of this trilogy. Yeah, it's, it's just very very bizarre the way that this movie is structured and you know it's one of those i try and find something positive to say about the movie because um you know just because a lot of time money and effort went into this you know cinematographers and sound design and stuff like that but i mean at its best this movie is just fucking milk toast like it is it is subpar and average in even its best qualities. Like even I don't, I don't even think Hugh Jackman's performance is particularly great in this movie. And he's a fucking phenomenal actor. And like, I didn't get much from him. I thought the chemistry between our love interests was basically like porn star level or, you know, a, 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 a shitty porno level of chemistry where it's just like, they're just kind of forced together in this awkward scene so that they can make out and fuck. Like it's just, it doesn't like, they don't feel organic at all. It just feels like literally they were puppets used to, you know, and yeah, where this movie ends. Like, I think the most impactful scene is when Bay is with the cliff Curtis character and knows that, um, Hugh Jackman's character, Nick, is going to go back and watch this, and that's going to be her chance to talk to him and interact with him, because they set it up, like, the the porno scene that you're talking about, she asks, you know, how close before the illusion is broken, mm-hmm. and that pays off with that scene with Cliff Curtis, but it's it that that scene is on an island nothing else really pays that off especially the chemistry between the two characters you have to make that love affair epic if that scene is going to land the way that i think they hoped it would Mm -hmm. oh and there's another there's another scene when you're talking about like the the weird themes like there's the scene where he gets kicked out of the the land barons you know mansion and he's walking through the yard and the sprinklers come on and there's like that weird scene where like he's realizing like everybody else is drowning around him and like they're using water you know recreationally to water their lawn and i'm like all it did was it again to your point all this movie does is remind me of other movies that did something better because all that did was remind me of like the final scenes of castaway when he gets back and like they throw him the buffet and like he's eating the crab meat and he pulls out the lighter and lights the lighter. And it's like, it's all these things that like people take for granted. And, you know, while he was struggling with it, while he was on the Island, I'm like, Oh, that they basically just did the end of castaway in this scene 
only Castaway did it way better. Yeah, I, I mean, I I can rattle off fifteen movies that I want to watch as a result of watching this, but that's that's not a good thing. No, oh, and the last thing I'll, I'll I'll say before we we can move on, or if you've got more, we can do. Oh, we have one more fucking uh, point that we have to do. But the one other. <laughs> When, when they did the, the big reveal as to, you know, you find out that she did fall in love with Nick and like him, but why she was like wound up having to basically con him and all that. And she's talking to the, um, the, the, um, the war vet who's lost his legs. She said, can you tell me anything about Nick? He's like, oh, there was this song that he always whistled in the trenches. And Nick, earlier in the movie, talks about like, like it's this really like obscure song that his grandpa always said, you know, whistled and all that. Somehow May listens to the whistling of the song and is able to determine what the lyrics of the song were so that she can then sing it to him in a memory and trap him. I'm like, well, how the fuck did you get from there to there? I'm like, there's there's a lot of steps in the like she's actually the world class detective if she was able to assimilate. She didn't fucking have Shazam on her phone. Like she just <laughs> I'm like, how how did you get from Well Brett, how do you know that she didn't know? This is the future. That's what I was thinking. She had Shazam and just spent the weekend humming into a phone. That was cut though. Yeah, it's like and that's the thing is like it there's so much of this movie, and that's what sums up this movie, is it's like they have all of these they had all of the the tent poles of what they needed to do and then they just kind of loosely throw the shit together to make it actually like work and i'm like i mean technically yes there's a narrative here but it doesn't make any sense whatsoever from beginning to end yeah the only slight disagreement i'll have i think the problem with the movie is they have 15 tent poles <laughs> and uh, a tent really doesn't need that many <laughs> so our last point in the five point inspection before we move into some chop shop you said looks like new orleans did we kind of yes. cover this a little bit earlier or is there more to this to unpack no we did i just had one quote that i wanted to read that perfectly encapsulates how this movie just tries to beat you over the head with stupid dialogue. Because to explain the title, looks like New Orleans. There's one point where they're looking at a memory and it's inside of a bar. And within two seconds of the memory, they're like, hey, looks like New Orleans. And I'm like, how? Why? <laughs> it's just the interior of a bar. Why do you know that it's New Orleans? Yeah, I've but never seen a New Orleans one, themed bar before. <laughs> what's that? I've never seen a New Orleans themed bar before. Yeah, you know, they don't exist as far as I'm concerned. But he, here's the one that I want to get. So the land barons, again, if you're watching this, you're watching it in 2021, you understand the concept of land barons and what they're doing because, again, we're living the reality. But yet this movie decides, let me give you a couple lines to describe the land barons. So I'm going to read it right now. Uh, the Sylvans, like all other barons, live in the dry lands. They build dams to insulate themselves, pushing the waves into the surrounding areas. The barons stay afloat by drowning everyone else. So that's heavy-handed as fuck, has beat me over the head with it. Brett, do you get the sense you understand who the barons are? I'm not sure, Travis. I, if, if you could enlighten me. Okay, well, hey, you know what? The movie agreed. Let's tack on another line right behind that. 
And this is, again, our main character, Nick Bannister, reciting this shit in voiceover. They say the only ones to survive the Titanic were the rich and the rats. The barons are both. <laughs> when they delivered that uh, line, did you did you say in your head, like, it was one of those things where I looked over to Caitlin, and I, I just, like, as they're getting ready to say, I'm like, and they're both. And then <laughs> Nick Bannister says, and they're both. I'm like, that was, <laughs> that was a pretty easy line. <laughs> yeah, I'm just like, this feels like the best seventh grade English major wrote this fucking movie. Oh, man. So yeah, that's, that's the only looks like new Orleans thing I wanted to touch on because we've, we've dunked on the dialogue of this movie plenty, but that one was the, <laughs> the cherry on top when I was like, yeah, this movie is going to be absolute dog shit. I just, I, I, I just have so many notes of other things that just didn't make sense. Like again, we established the world is like, it's so blazing hot and you can't be out during the day. Yet at a certain point, Hugh Jackman's character, Nick, when he, like you, you mentioned earlier, May is living on, like she's on the roof of this building underneath like a, like a, some kind of cover, you know, a shaded yeah, cover a and all that. A canopy. When Nick goes to talk to her, he walks barefoot across the roof of the building. Didn't, apparently the sun is just beating down on because it's so blazing hot. And I'm like, his feet would be on fire. Like again, it's like it's a movie like this is where all I do is focus on like the little details. Where I'm just like, you literally didn't think anything through. Why even bring up how hot it is during the day? Just make the movie take place at night. You don't even have to explain why we never see him during the hell. You could just have it. He works all day, so he's only out during the night. Like there's like it just. It's these one little lines that they do world building, but then do nothing to back up the the world building that they've done. Or when he heads to New Orleans, somehow his his partner is what two minutes behind him because she saves his life. When I honestly thought they were introducing superheroes in the scene where like he's being like drowned in the eel tank and he looks over and sees the dude like fly across the room i'm like oh man we're introducing superheroes too like super strength i'm like that's gonna be interesting it's like oh no she has a shotgun and i'm like where the fuck did she come from she was in miami (laughs) yeah and i mean also he's walking across the roof barefoot but also the rest of the movie, when he's out in daylight, let's wear a fucking sport coat and a tie everywhere we go. Yeah. I'm like, I, I live in the real America. And when it's hot and it's 95 degrees in August, I'm out there in short shorts and a T-shirt wearing as little clothing as possible. And yet he looks like he's on the way to the governor's ball. Yeah, I just so so very disappointed in this movie like i went into it kind of knowing that it had gotten bad reviews i did not expect it to be this rough if i'm honest i was expecting more of a push where i think critically it got shit on but i enjoyed that movie a lot and i guess i was kind of hoping for a guilty pleasure with this because i love the film noir genre it was kind of you know, even if it was a bastardization of Inception, it felt kind of Inception-esque, and the poster made me think Blade Runner with the colors that they were choosing. Like, I, I went into this movie hoping that I was going to be surprised, and I was I was let down even further than what I thought I was going to be. Yeah, no, 100% agree, and intentionally or not, a lot of the vibes of this movie bled over into my chop shop this week. 
Yeah. Um, so, well, you know, I think this is a perfect segment into Chop Shop. admit um after watching the movie i was as inspired as they were making it so i kind of phoned mine in um i don't know how you feel i don't know if you feel you have a stronger one or what order you want to do this in i just want to prepare you and the audience for a very loose chop shop uh yeah go ahead and blow through yours because mine's longer but much like this movie i got about halfway through and realized what the fuck am I doing with all these themes? <laughs> Let me just wrap this up. Oh, so, so yours, is, um, yours is like a metaphor. <laughs> you know what? And it's a little bit on the nose probably, but yes, this subject matter just lends itself to just giving up halfway through the production. So I, you can lead it off, but I feel like we'll both have the same energy. Yeah. I, uh, I knew how I wanted to start this and how I wanted to end it, and I just couldn't really come up with the middle but so same it's so uh you know for for my i had to make mine into a family-friendly movie so i decided i was going to take reminiscence and i was going to add in a heaping helping of cheaper by the dozen with maybe an injection of willy wonka and a dash of inception all right so that's that's kind of where my my idea was to kind of merge these together chop them up so it starts off with a semi-large family. I'm thinking maybe two parents, four kids, frantically trying to get around each other in the morning. You know, it's a typical scene. We've seen it in plenty of movies. It's almost Home Alone, but I didn't want to go Home Alone and make everybody think we're going, you know, with, with pranks and shit like that. So typical madhouse. People are bumping into each other. Someone is yelling about, you know, how they need to get into the bathroom or someone's taking too long in the bathroom. So we've established kind of like how stretched the family is. Everybody's kind of at a different age, so they have different, you know wants and needs of what they want so it's obvious that the third child is kind of being overlooked in this situation uh you know maybe they're asking for help but people are ignoring them etc etc that you know they look lost while everyone's running around like maybe they're stationary as the world's running around them um but at the end of the day kind of like not getting the attention that they they really think they they need or they they should have so um the movie continues to build the hustle and bustle of the family. You know, the dad is maybe a workaholic. Mom is very involved with kid number two soccer uh, and also with, you know, the youngest child because it's still, you know, maybe not an infant, but maybe we're looking like three, four years old. So something young that is still going to require a lot of attention. Um, while the oldest child is probably at the age where they're they're kind of looking for some independence. They're kind of just a dickhead, you know. Um, I'm thinking maybe like a 13, 14 year oldish, you know, somewhere around that age, maybe even a little 16, I think is where I would cap that out at. So what we've been building up, there's going to be like subtle, subtle hints throughout this, you know, the first act of the movie about like grandma and her garden. We're never really going to see grandma. Maybe somebody will make a reference as to, you know, how ever since grandma passed away or something like that, where we have to establish that the grandma was a key figure, maybe the, the matriarch of the family and she's no longer with us. This is where we kind of scrub through at some point. They're going to have to come to an amusement park or something where they're going to have to use memory um, because uh, third kid's going to get upset and he's going to like disappear, run away, right? And now they've got to frantically figure out where the kid is. So this is where 
Somehow they're going to have to use memory technology. I'm not sure this. I was thinking maybe Willow. Originally, I was thinking they would all go into each other's memories and like a fun memory and relive that. But I'm like, I think I'm going more the Inception route than the kind of like memory route with this. So I was like, fuck, I got to kind of pull it back. So ultimately, number three runs off. Um, So they have to go to the service. Maybe it's kind of like a Christopher Walken from Click, like a weird kind of dude, but like he's got the technology to help them like kind of figure out like we, you know, we have to think about, we have to know where he has to be somewhere, you know, he has, he wasn't kidnapped. We, he ran away. We know he ran away. So they all wind up going through the memory machine and we wind up finding out that they all have kind of the same memory, though it's a little different from different perspectives of, of memory with grandma telling about a story about her favorite place to hide um, around the house to find peace or when she's stressed out and it's going to be like this garden on somewhere on the property um, so they realize how much the matriarch meant to the family in a sense you know after she died how much it kind of involved everybody and everybody became very centralized on themselves then it stopped being about the family reunion or the family unit like she kind of held everybody together and kept the family unified so now that knowing that kid number three is safe they all rush back home they find you know, kid number three in, in the garden crying. They console, oh my God, be better. You know, we need to come together as a family, yada, yada, this bullshit. Yeah. And then um, they agree to spend more time together and then we'll do like a, maybe a couple months flash forward and the movie's going to end with the family all sitting in the garden having like like a family dinner together in, in grandma's garden. So <laughs> that's how I turn the movie again. Definitely not as involved as some of my chop shops, but I think you get the gist of where I was going with it. No, I do. I I think you're being way too hard on yourself because I think what you're doing is what this movie should have done, which is just trying to streamline what you're doing. And so like you, you build a pretty simple premise that still works within this crazy advanced technological future but you're not trying to go 50 different directions. It's about the family feel good and, and kind of, you know, realizing what grandma kind of saw and lived through. So, you know, I think that's brilliant. I, I would watch that way before I would watch this actual movie. <laughs> yeah. So I decided to shed all of the political stuff, all of the underwater and the war stuff, and just focus on, you know, the, the, the sci-fi aspect of it with the, the memory recall. So, and you know what? That's a, that's a brilliant decision. I, unfortunately for myself, did not. I, I tried to bring as many elements into my chop shop as possible. And that's why I mentioned about halfway through, I was like, no, fuck this. <laughs> so I'm going to give you my chop shop. I, I, I wrote down a detailed opening, which I'll give, but I know we want to kind of compare movies like this so is Die what, Hard meets X. So, What genre did you get? What did you have to turn this into? Oh, that's a great question. I got horror. Horror. All right. So, As if this movie wasn't horrific enough. Yeah. So I've got a very long treatment here, but I'm going to kind of trim it up. I'm going to give you the opening, and then I'm going to give you where I'm trying to go with this. Mm-hmm. And then maybe you can help me land the plane instead of me trying to go through this convoluted plot. But one of the weaker parts of this movie, I thought, was why have Nick be a war veteran if we're never going to show any sort of his experience? So 
my horror movie of reminiscence is going to open with Nick Bannister fighting in the war. Uh, it's like the scene he described, the sun is beginning to set, uh, his battalion, they're, they're in the trench, a World War One style trench. And everybody's kind of spending their last few moments before nightfall going about their various rituals. Um, you know, Bannister, of course, he's contemplating life. How can he spend this time better? He's got his head resting against a dirt wall on the trench. And then he hears a faint hum and it's growing louder. And Bannister realizes that something is burrowing into the trench. Other men start to hear the sound and feel a slight rumble when finally like a, a three to four foot drill comes through the wall and falls to the ground. Everybody's puzzled. They approach it and they realize, yeah, it's made a, a whole ass tunnel. Uh, but before they can really investigate what the tunnel is there to do, they hear a, a large rushing sound. And, and we cut to the enemy forces, and they're in the trench across from them. And uh, this this army's led by the land baron Walter Sylvan, who we did meet in this movie. Uh, and we see his army insert some sort of futuristic device in the hole, which produces a powerful jet stream of water. And basically, they're going to flood the trench their enemy's trench. So the sun is all the way down and the men begin to panic because the trench is just filling up with water and several men climb out of the trench because they don't want to drown. And suddenly giant floodlights from across the battlefield turn on and it kind of blinds the men momentarily. And then they're all cut down with machine gun fire. So Bannister's like, Hey, we can't get out of the trench. Just, just stay in the trench, float, and fire at the enemy. Um, but then we, uh, again, cut to the Land Baron's army on the other side, and now they're wheeling in some sort of crate, and they're inserting some sort of creature into that hole that they just drilled. Um, so then we cut back, and Bannister's men continue to fire towards the enemy. They're submerged in the trench, but they're kind of like floating and shooting. And the trench has basically become a small river, and suddenly the floodlights go out, and the creature that was inserted into the tunnel, it reaches Bannister's men. And one by one, the men are drugged under the water. They're firing their rifles wildly. And through brief flashes of light from the rifles, Bannister can kind of see that there's some sort of humanoid monster in the, in the trench with them, just killing everybody. But we only get brief glimpses, and then... The creature latches onto Bannister's leg, and then we cut to the, the opening credits. And so one of the, the things I didn't like about this movie is that they didn't show Bannister's war experience. So I thought this could show that. But this being a horror movie, we also introduced the monster. I like it. Uh, so we're going we're gonna to pick up a few years later. Basically, all of this movie is the same, except May appears to be working for the land baron that was a general in that that opening battle scene so this is where i'm gonna stop instead of going through the convoluted plot that i've invented the overall vibe i want to go for is the land baron this this movie Reminiscence, one of the big themes is, you know, the 1% and the 99%, right? So 
in this new reality where we're living underwater or at least partially submerged, a, a big pharmaceutical company develops a drug that will help people live in this new aquatic environment, but there are side effects. So they cancel it. But this land baron being rich, he, he wanted to pay for the experimental doses. He wanted to see, he wanted to benefit himself. He has the money. Hey, if I can breathe underwater, that's good for me. It turns him into a monster though. So the whole movie is going to be uh, Nick Bannister pursuing May, but May is now employed by this corrupt uh, land baron who now, because he's been turned into kind of an excuse me, amphibious monster, he wants the whole world to be the ocean because now he's got the he's always had the power, he's always got the money, but now he breathes under the water better than he does, you know, breathing oxygen. So basically it's going to be a plot by him to sink the rest of the world. Uh, but he's going to have kind of his cronies that are also rich guys. They've also taken the experimental drugs. So basically they have an army of amphibious monsters who through various scary scenes are going to kill our heroes or attack our heroes. And then the ultimate sacrifice is going to be May, who is working for him, who has also been infected by the drug. She's finally going to have to say, hey, even though a world underwater benefits me, I can't let that happen. And then we end with the monster being killed through um, Bannister and May kind of joining forces and May sacrifices herself to kill the monsters. Now, that would allow us a bunch of horrific monster scenes, which I'd written down. But again, I'm not, I'm not going to go through those beat by beat. So I'll just kind of open it up to you. Did any of that make sense or is this Reminiscence 2.0? It did. So when you first did this, I thought you were going in a, in a slightly different direction. And then I kind of thought you were going in another direction. So my initial thought was, you know, it would be a really interesting theme with the idea of, of memory and going off of nostalgia is Nick basically, you know, he survives and he now has this shop where everyone coming to him is trying to relive a memory, whereas Nick is just trying to forget one, one that haunts him, and just kind of, you know, the the horror of that, of, like, this terrible traumatic situation where, like, the, the juxtaposition of, like, all of his clients are trying to relive something that they love, whereas he just wishes he could, he could forget something, and, like, that's kind of that pursuit, and then, you know, may... Again, you could kind of bring it back into back into what you're doing because then you have May working for the the land baron, which allows him to get closure and maybe he's finally able to move on by the end of the movie because of the horrific actions. And then in terms of your humanoid, the thing that I think what I would change with that would be interesting. Just, you know, I like trying to the land the land baron's gonna be a, a giant piece of shit, but it would be interesting to try and humanize him if like the monster winds up being like he had a very sick son or his son or his wife is sick and like he tried to use the pills to fix them and it Ooh, turned them into yes. a monster but rather than put them out of his misery he realized like he could still use them to his benefit so like 
it might have started as some kind of like, oh, I'm going to use my money to save my family. But then even though they, they've lost their identity, like he winds up still using them rather than allowing them to pass on that, you know, and I don't know if it's like, you know, the memory of them he's unwilling to let go of. But at that point, like, again, it's become a bastardization where like his memory of his son is actually what the reality is, which is just this absolute monster, you know? Mm, mm. Yeah, see, again, that's your specialty, Brad, coming in and, and adding that special touch. But again, when a movie is so overstuffed with ideas, it's no wonder that both of us kind of introduced multiple elements and didn't exactly know where to land the plane. And that's a microcosm for this movie. So, yeah, perfect chop shop, in my opinion perfect job shop yeah and it's also great that we also chose to ignore a lot of the themes that the movie we're just like no i'm just gonna focus on this one bit and then i think i'll actually make this bit even more elaborate <laughs> yeah and you have to because i mean if there are eight themes you can't you can't pick all of them which is why this movie just does not work yep Alrighty, with that said, I think we can jump into our, our final three segments of the night. Easy one here, Blue Book. Travis, I'm going to tell you, the price tag on this baby was $54 million. So that is that is what it took to, to make the movie. Uh, looking it up, I guess the ratio is about a movie has, I think you said this before, a movie has to make about twice what it... It or, or what it costs in order for it to be considered like break even. So this movie would have needed to have made about 110 million dollars for it to to break even. Be I guess you can consider a success. Do you want to guess? As of right now, the movie was released. Uh, what? It's been out there for what? Maybe a month, if that. What was the release date of this baby? It, it's not long. It's it's fairly recent. Yeah. Yeah, within a month for sure. Yeah. Uh, opening weekend was August 22nd. So we're probably, yeah, we'll say probably three, four weeks out, which, you know, if it's a big movie like Lord of the Rings, it's going to, or Titanic, it's continue to make gangbusters. If it's a movie that maybe did not do so, so well, it's probably made most of what it's going to make. So, Travis, do you want to go ahead and guess, first off, what you think it has made U.S., Canada? And then what you think it has made worldwide? Uh, I, I didn't expect those numbers to be available, but. Uh... Knowing that there was also it was released on HBO Max, which is how we watched it. We yeah. Just... <laughs> so. um, worldwide, I'm going to say. Two point three million dollars. I think you'll be surprised. Oh, wait, no. I need I need to remember how math work or how yeah numbers work. Um, it, I'm, Are we doing I'm, money I'm looking conversion? At, I'm looking at 18 million. Uh, no, I'm having to look at how many commas there are. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, it, it looks like about 18 million. Uh, I'm I'm pleasantly surprised by that number. I feel like there are a lot of people pissed off that they paid money to watch this. Do you want to guess how much it made us? So the worldwide was 18? Worldwide was 18. Uh, 3.1 million. 
Damn, dude. Yeah. Uh, 3.8. You're right there at it. I, I still can't believe that it made that much. Uh, maybe people are just desperate to get out to the, uh, to, to the, uh, what is it? The theaters. Yeah, I just, I don't know what is the major draw for this movie. I love Hugh Jackman more than most. I'll just watch Logan again. Mm-hmm. Well, even this, like, I've never seen it. I've heard that the Greatest Showman is fantastic, but apparently May pl- was in Greatest Showman with him. So, like, even this movie feels like it is a bunch of, like, they just kind of got people together and kind of shoved it together. Like, it is just, it's so, it's so bad. It's so bad. Um, Which will bring us into our almost last segment, Tag and Title. You ready for some Tag and Title? Absolutely. All right, I'm going to give Travis three taglines for reminiscence. One of them is the actual tagline for the movie. One is for something, a movie I found adjacent to reminisce, or to the movie. And the third is a tagline I created myself. Travis's objective, again, is to tell us what the tagline of this movie was. So, are you ready? Yes, sir. All right, your first tagline is, your mind is the scene of a crime. Inception. Yep. <laughs> I thought I probably shouldn't do that, but what the fuck? All yeah, right. that's a layup. Yeah, yeah. All right, so your final two are don't look back, and what memories do you haunt? Um... Don't look back, I assume, is the tagline because it's uninspired and I don't quite know what it's trying to say. And then what was the other quote? What memories do you haunt? I love that quote, so I'm assuming it's a part of a better movie. So that's kind of my prediction. Wait, no, that means you would have made that up. I just, so there's your final answers. So you think don't those look, are my final answers. Okay. If you made that up, that's much better than don't, what this don't fucking look back movie deserves. Is the tagline for this movie? I did create. What memories do you haunt? And out of curiosity, how long did it take you to come up with that? Mm, about two minutes. Uh, I knew I wanted to use the word memories, and I thought about uh, the movie and some of of one of the many themes of the movie and kind of, you know, derived a, a tagline that I thought made sense. As a- I, yeah. And, and you know what? I, I don't want to short sell you because maybe you're just fucking gifted, Brett, but it just feels like if you can come up with that in two minutes, maybe, you know, some more effort could be put forth by the studios that put out this shit. I just, it, to me, there's a certain level of where, like, they do look for generic taglines where I'm like, do, does the person who makes the tagline not also have any involvement with the movie or do they not watch the movie or the script? Because, I mean, like, a lot of the times when I write the tagline, I try to do something that's generic enough that it will create intrigue and it's not too ingrained in the movie, but also references back to the movie. So, like, it's it sticks with you if you've seen the movie. Again, your mind is the scene of a crime, like, very clearly Inception. Like, it is, and it's a, it's a fantastic tagline for that movie. Yeah, I just, 
it's no surprise that the tagline was even uninspired for this movie. It is my takeaway from that segment. Yep, yep, yep. So we'll we'll round it out here. Final thing, it's just our final send off. What do we uh what do we think of the movie? Is is it worth anybody watching? Is there anything worth watching about it? A clip to find on YouTube, just final thoughts, I guess is what we'll just we'll sum this up to final thoughts for now on rather than trying to make any you know, I guess landed recommendations. Yeah. No, I, I don't recommend this for anybody. Like if, if, if I were a relative of Hugh Jackman, I would say I've got five movies at least that are better by my relative than what this is. Like there's just any positive you could take away from this movie you can immediately point to another movie who does it 10 times better. So the only benefit of watching this movie is if maybe you're a young person who hasn't seen a lot and you're intrigued by the themes of this movie. And then you have a jumping off point to seek other stuff out beyond that. Stay the fuck away from this. Yeah, it's, it's a hard pass for me. I just, I, I don't think there's really anything or for that most that there's not enough redeeming qualities in this movie to to recommend you watch it over something else like I'm not going to go so far as to say I would rather watch semi pro again um it's but close I, you I read my mind yeah it's close. but it's it's one of those where it's like they pretty much left me the same way I'm like the the problem this the problem with this movie is the same thing I, I had with semi pro because I unfortunately watched that movie twice. It's like if someone asks me about this movie two years from now, I'm not going to remember how much I hated it unless I watch it again. And that's not a good like that's not good anywhere. Like I would rather a movie even if I thought it was such dog shit like it sticks with me like this movie's so bad you won't even remember it. Which I mean, I think we should just end the episode there because you literally said a movie about memories is so unforgettable that a week from now you'll not remember a goddamn thing about it. If that doesn't produce a tweet-length review, I don't know what does. (laughs) A movie about memory that you immediately forget. That sounds like a wonderful headline if this was a written review. (laughs) <laughs> yeah that should be the fucking tagline of the movie i don't think it would sell tickets though <laughs> uh alrighty. with that uh i guess we'll call it here and um hopefully we'll see you next week for the next installment in the mind trilogy also you jackman just loves being in water tanks clearly Oh, you mean the other Christopher or the Christopher Nolan movie where it had to deal with memory transfer because he was a magician in the prestige? Yeah, no. Again, it's also X-23, you know, whatever Weapon X, Wolverine was in the water. Mm hmm. Yeah. So anyway, fuck this movie. (laughs) Bye. I couldn't help but think of the criminal justice system and how there should be 
our more elegant way to rehabilitate the quote unquote ills of society. Did I yeah, read no, all? I, f- I fucked up the okay. line there. <laughs> okay, I was like, is my brain broken? Am I <laughs> so okay? Yeah, I'll just fix it in post. 